Diversion Podcasts. A Diversion Podcast in association with iHeartRadio. This is the GOAT, Serena. All right, so let's 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 review Serena's US Open tragedies. The well, she wins her first major there. She so wins her high. first major there. The, high of, the highest of highs. Highest of highs. And then she won a, a whole bunch more and she's yeah. winning her dub. She's not, there's nothing wrong with Serena and New York. But when you think about all of the meltdowns, goddamn, they seem to, it was Kleister's, the Sam Stozer thing. Remember, who yes. the hell thought Sam Stozer was going to beat her? But that happened. Yeah. And the Osaka thing. And it, like she knows, here's my shot. When Serena lost to Vinci, she was trying to tie Steffi Graf. She was trying to get to 22. And Vinci just carves it up. And, and Vinci's whole attitude is, I'm not going to make any mistakes. You know? And Serena made mistakes. And she was tight. And we all could feel it. And it was, again, it, it was hard. It was hard to watch her feel the weight, the burden of history on her shoulders, right? Those last years when she played four times, one match for history. Uh, which is, again, the, the highest pressure I think you can mm. have in sports. It's the highest possible. It's a real hurdle to go through, so she, she suffered a lot. When she lost since against Vinci, if she would have won this US Open, she would have won five Grand Slams in a row, and including four the same year. Uh, and she lost in semis against Vinci. And what she told me uh, a month after she lost this match in the semi-final of the US Open, she said, to me, I feel that I worked all my life for that moment and I screwed everything up. Oh, wow. And this is a strong statement. Welcome to The GOAT Season 2, Serena. I'm Chanda Rubin, former world number six, Grand Slam singles semifinalist and doubles champion, alongside my co-host, Zena Garrison, a former Wimbledon finalist, world number four, and Olympic gold medalist. In this podcast... Part of Diversion's GOAT series, Zena and I and our guest celebrate the career and life of Serena Williams. We'll trace her path as she evolved from an outlier in the tennis establishment into the all-time Grand Slam singles champion and ultimately a cultural icon. Grand Slam. Those are the two most magical words in tennis, followed closely by Serena Williams, the player who has won the most Grand Slam singles titles in the open era. In this episode of the podcast, Slamorama, we'll focus on Serena's two decade long drive to become the GOAT. And the first credential anyone looks at to determine a player's place in the pantheon of the game is Grand Slam singles titles. You may not all be diehard tennis fans, so here's some context. The four most important tournaments of the year, going back well over 100 years, are Wimbledon, the Australian, French, and U.S. Opens. Winning all four in the same year was dubbed the Grand Slam, something that only five players in the entire history of the game have achieved. That's why the individual tournaments are also referred to as Grand Slams, Slams, or simply Majors. Whichever name you choose, they are the four suns around which tennis revolves. 
And tennis history is divided into two different periods because the majors were for amateurs only until pros were allowed to compete in them in 1969. It was the change that led to tennis becoming a big time, big money sport that attracts the very top athletes from most nations. So while Margaret Court still leads Serena Williams by one major singles title, it's good to remember that Court won half of her majors before 1969. It's a sizable asterisk. I mentioned that only five people have completed a calendar year Grand Slam, two men and three women. Well, Serena is not one of them. She had an excellent chance to record the first Grand Slam since Steffi Graf in 1988, but she fell two matches short. That was in 2015, when she was beaten in three sets in the semifinals of the U.S. Open by number 43, Roberta Vinci, who has never gone that deep in a tournament before or since. We'll delve a little deeper into that match later in the show, with some help from Serena's coach, Patrick Maradoglu. But here's a little more about the majors. The thing that makes the Grand Slam so difficult is that each year, just two players, the male and female winners of the first major in Australia, have a shot at doing it. The next best thing to a Grand Slam is holding all four majors at the same time. There's no official term for this feat. Usually it's just referred to as a non-calendar year Grand Slam, or less formally, as the Martina Slam or the Serena Slam. It's also a rare feat. Leaving out the five who achieved calendar year slams, only four players since 1949 have held all four majors at the same time. Serena did it twice. One of the unique things about tennis is that the game's four most important events take place on three significantly different surfaces. The hard courts of the Australian and US Opens, which are basically cement with the rubberized paint coating. The French Open is played on clay, and Wimbledon features grass. So winning slams on more than one surface is another great achievement. Winning each of the Grand Slams at least three times also puts Serena on a level only Steffi Graf shares. Even icons Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova weren't able to accomplish that. We're going to do things a little differently in this episode. Our producers asked Zena and me if we would share our own thoughts on the majors, along with Serena's amazing record, which makes us guests on our own show. We both feel it would be remiss if we didn't lead off this celebration of Serena with our own memories of her very first major win at the U.S. Open of 1999. Ladies and gentlemen, the 1999 U.S. Open Women's Single Champion, Serena Williams. You know, let's start with the U.S. Open because that was Serena's first major title. And I think it stands out for a lot of us, certainly for me, and I think for you as well. But what do you remember about about that U.S. Open in 1999? 
Well, first of all, that little, was it a yellow puma dress? I mean, like she just looks so adorable with her braids and, um, you know, well, cornrows. And then, you know, she had the little beads on the end of it. But, you know, Chanda, 1999, I, I never forget. I was watching it on television and then she made it to the finals and I was like, I got to be there um, because of the history part. And I, I remember walking through the airport and, and people were like, Zena, you going to watch Serena? Yeah, tell her to go, go, go. You know, just it was just so much excitement, you know, just to see a young, fresh face. And um, and the fact that, you know, you know, this was an African, an African-American, you know, young tennis player. And, and she had that intensity and she was just, you know, she had that oomph. It was actually amazing to sit there and watch her. Well, when you think about the players that she beat, I mean, it was you know, Grand Slam champions, future Grand Slam champions, future Hall of Famers, you know, four or five of them. It was crazy, all the people she beat. <laughs> uh, during that run, yeah, amazing. And, you know, it was also interesting because, you know, we had been looking at Venus to win first. You know, she was actually before Serena, and we kind of expected Venus to maybe make more of a run, but but then it was completely turned around when Serena uh, got that title. You remember that hoodie? She had the hoodie over her head and, she, you know, but I was kind of, I don't know how you felt. Like I was trying to figure out, I was like, how could, how is Venus feeling? Because she was supposed to be the first. So it was kind of strange, but then I had this thing in the back of me. I was thinking, well, Serena definitely is going to win because nobody's beating two Williams back to back. What did you think, Chanda? I remember kind of seeing that vision you're talking about Venus sitting watching with the hoodie on um, in the stands and you know seeing her little little sister get to this stage where she wanted to be I mean remember in 1997 it was Venus in the final of the U.S. Open first Um, and and I remember that year clearly by the way I'm I'm digressing a little bit but I remember 97 um, that year clearly because I played the first match on Arthur Ashe Stadium, <laughs> and um, I ended up, it was a, a surreal moment, you know, I, knowing everything Arthur Ashe represented, being at the U.S. Open, my home Grand Slam, where I most wanted to do well. I had already been top 10 in the world. Um, I'd had some injuries, so I was kind of coming back, but I just remember how nervous I was for that match and how how excited I was to be a part of something that was so much bigger than me. And then you go on, you see Venus get to the final and, you know, create all of this buzz and this, you know, amazing atmosphere. And and then a couple of years later, instead of Venus, 1999, yeah, it's Serena. And so I I just all of that kind of went through my mind as I was watching Venus sitting there in the stands, watching her little sister. And, you know, there had to be mixed emotions because it was supposed to be Venus first, Venus winning first. It it was mixed emotion, but also that grace and elegance that we all loved about, you know, Venus. She still showed it when her, you know, after her little sister won. So I thought that was just an amazing moment. Amazing is an unavoidable word when it comes to describing the career and accomplishments of Serena at Grand Slam events. Let's leave more details about Serena's U.S. Open record for later and start at the beginning, the first Grand Slam event of the year, the Australian Open. The tournament is often called the Happy Slam because everything about the tournament is laid back, fun, 
summer vacation-y. But in the 1970s and much of the 80s, it was more like a Grand Slam in name only. It was held in Melbourne, Australia, about as far from home for most tennis players as you can get. It took place over the Christmas and New Year holidays. It was played on gnarly grass courts at an overcrowded private club called Kuyong. For years, top players simply didn't show up to play there. But all that changed in 1988 when the tournament moved into its roomy state-of-the-art home in Melbourne Park. The new surface was the most popular kind, hard courts. The date was pushed back to an ideal slot in mid-January, and it made all the difference in the world, especially to players from the Northern Hemisphere. It's funny, but nothing really suggests why the Australian would be Serena's most successful major, but it's right there sharing the lead with Wimbledon. She won seven titles at each, but she may have won more crucial ones in Melbourne than anywhere else. In 2003, Serena defeated Venus in a great match to seal her first Serena Slam. It was her fifth major title. In 2005, she won her seventh major there after fending off three match points in a semifinal with Maria Sharapova, the match that nipped a potentially tough rivalry in the bud. We spoke a number of times in other episodes about Serena's performance two difficult years later. She entered that tournament with a ranking of number 81, in danger of losing her Nike contract and in poor shape. But inspired by a family trip to Africa a few months earlier, Serena vowed to return to the top of the game. Former Wimbledon champ and TV analyst Pat Cash called her vow deluded. Others indulged in body shaming. To top it off, Serena came down with a wicked cold early in the event, along with painful blisters. But she played through the pain. In the third round, she came within two points of losing. In the quarterfinals, Shahar Payer pushed her into overtime before Serena won 8-6 in the third. But Serena nailed down the title with another demolition of Maria Sharapova. That major, number eight, might represent the greatest effort of her career. And who could forget the last major Serena has won to date? That was also in Melbourne in 2017. And Eight weeks pregnant at the time, major win number 23, fittingly over her greatest rival, Sister Venus, moved her into sole ownership of the open era record for most majors. The GOAT Serena Slamorama continues after this. 
So Zena, I just found out something that I did not know, but you made the semifinals at the Australian Open while the tournament was on grass. You got to the semifinals there at Kuyong. The reason why you probably didn't know that, because I'm much older than you. but <laughs> Not that much, Zena. But, but no, Kuyong, oh my God, I, I remember the first time that I had the opportunity. You know, back in those days, it's like, you know, you you have to go like right after Christmas, like the day after Christmas, you were, you were there. And, um, I remember the first thing that I got to Kuyong and and just thinking this was just like the most beautiful place that I ever seen. It was on grass. It was a little small, 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 intimate, intimate place. And, um, I immediately, um, loved grass and and Kuyong was back then was very special, but I also was very fortunate to be one of those players that I, 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 opportunity to actually play Kuyong and then go on and to play on the rebound ace at that time. Yes, in Melbourne Park. It moved from Kuyong to Melbourne Park. And, um, you know, I only knew it at Melbourne Park uh, when I turned pro. That was where the event was played. And I got to the semifinals at the Australian Open as well. Um, And for me, that was, I mean, just a Un, an unbelievable tournament. Um, it was, you know, my first semifinal big breakthrough. Um, I kind of went on to get to top 10 uh, as a, a result of that, re- that, um, that showing and, you know, other results. And we won the doubles I did with uh, Rancho Sanchez that year as well. Uh, but I also just like the feel of it. You know, it's different from the other Grand Slams. It's a little more relaxed and, um, you know, you just feel like to start the year, you want to have that type of feeling where you're happy and, and you're looking forward to what may come. And I always felt like that at Australia. But I'm curious for you, making the switch from Kuyong to Melbourne Park and kind of seeing it from, from uh, you know, those different vantage points, what do you feel kind of changed with the Australian Open? For you, well, I think I came in right at the end where you know it was Australian Open was a Grand Slam, but it was just a Grand Slam that people went to, and I think when it went to Melbourne, it became like okay, Melbourne, it's part of the four Grand Slams that all of a sudden Grand Slam tournaments became much bigger, which I think they are now. But I think back then it didn't seem to have to me didn't seem to have the you know, the players didn't seem to have that interest of like, you know, it was another tournament, but with a little bigger, you know, a um, little bigger uh, award on it. Um, but Tienda, did you also, for me, I also felt that it was very, very far away. And sometimes I felt a little bit lonely, like when I went down there. And that took a while for me to kind of get over it. Yeah, it's interesting. It is really far. And, you know, when you make that trip to Australia, it's a commitment. And, you know, right out of the gate, you're going for at least four to five weeks. And then, as you mentioned, it's right around Christmas time that you usually have to leave. Sometimes you leave before Christmas. Sometimes you leave right after. Uh, It depended on how days fell. But it was always that kind of bittersweet part of it, you know, leaving home around the holidays. But looking forward for me, looking forward to the start of the year, you know, looking to kind of prove uh, what I've been waiting to prove, you know, during the off season. And so I had never felt the loneliness as much as I felt that type of energy and, and excitement about it. And, and I'm curious on that note, when you think about, 
Serena and how well she's always played in Australia. Do you think that that maybe played a part? Do you think there was some, you know, kind of different focus for her at that first major of the year? I think probably was a little bit of a difference for for us than maybe a, her. She never celebrated Christmas because of her faith. Um, so they had, I knew that they had certain times that they went and they practice and, you know, different than maybe you and I, you know, looking forward to Christmas and all the holidays and just kind of the whole thing. So it would be interesting to know. Yeah. And part of that may have been, you know, the court surface as well. I mean, that's a big difference between the four majors in Australia. You know, that when it moved to Melbourne Park, it was on the rebound ace, which, you know, the ball kind of jumps up a little bit more. It, it's it's a good surface for, you know, kind of aggressive baseliners and, you know, people who are uh, looking, um, you know, to to really grind down in rallies in some but ways. That, that rebound ace, it was like, what was it? Ro- melted tires it or was, something? It or, was, <laughs> yeah, it was all I remember <laughs> is thinking to myself, there's no way we're going to keep playing on it. That was the hottest it would get on your feet so that I've hot. never felt in my entire life. <laughs> you would have to bring extra pairs of shoes sometimes just because your the soles would get so hot you would feel them burning through <laughs> the, the soles and your socks <laughs> to your feet. And you had to it was definitely something to get used to. The blisters were always a huge factor in Australia because of the surface, because of how hot it was, and also it's the start of the year. And players are still kind of getting some of the match fitness back. And uh, But that also, now that I'm thinking about, you know, Serena has always, we know her to be as tough as nails. And sometimes it was so hot down there, other players would, you know, just kind of whimper at certain. And she, coming from Florida, used to that humidity, used to the heat or whatever, seemed to strive sometimes in that heat. Yeah, you know? and she, she just excelled and seemed like she got better when conditions were tougher. Yeah, and, and you know, one that comes to mind is, you know, and actually her sister Isha talked about it a little bit. It, she came in, you know, just a little more voluptuous <laughs> and <laughs> I think everybody was Zeta going exactly. into Australia you always just had one or two extra pounds and you're like okay I'm gonna get it off with the heat <laughs> she came in a little bit you know and it just seemed I, I had never seen a player literally play themselves into a tournament where you could literally see the pounds being dripped off from the sweat and the heat and everything and, and playing by the time she got to the finals. And I think she played Sharapova and she demolished Sharapova in that final. It was absolutely crazy. Yeah, she played Well, she played Sharapova in Australia in 2005, and that was Grand Slam number seven. And Sharapova had match points in the semi there that year. And Serena, again, just kind of, it's like she just refused to lose. And of course, against Sharapova, there was always that different dynamic as well from the, the first matches that they played against each other. And I guess, we, and we have to, you know, we're talking about the Australian Open. You know, I don't. I would be curious to know what, how you felt about it. The crowd there literally knows and understand and appreciates tennis. 
and they appreciate people, you know, they know your backgrounds, even before you know your backgrounds of what you can do, what you couldn't do. And, and I loved playing there because they knew your history and they appreciate you for the player, not for all the fluff fluff that might be put around you. Yeah, they were, they just understood and were so knowledgeable, you know, the, the Aussie fans. And maybe that was because they waited all year for the players to come and play. And, you know, it was their summer where they could relax and kids were out of school. And so you'd always have this incredible energy. But I have to say, Zena, there were some things in Australia that were questionable. I mean, Vegemite. Did you ever try it? I would like to say I tried it. And I would also tell you, I will never try it again. <laughs> I was like, what is these people thinking? It is the nastiest stuff. And well, I, I thought it, was, it looked like chocolate, but no, it does not taste like chocolate. Okay. I've heard it's an acquired taste. You have to have it from birth. But I could never, as much as I enjoyed and, and loved Australia, I could never get into Vegemite. And, you know, we have to, if we're going to talk about Australia the Australian Open, we have to talk about Serena's last major win there in 2017, right? We, we, I mean, how in the world, she was pregnant, found out she was pregnant before the tournament, played two weeks, seven matches with a baby on the way. How is that even possible? And one. Let's not forget, played her sister who knew that she was pregnant. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, and then, you know, recently I watched that, um, watched the, the couple points from that last match. And, you know, it just kept coming to me how gently Serena fell when she won. So, and the look on Venus' face like, girl, are you crazy? Why? <laughs> <laughs> Let's move now from Serena's most productive major to her least, the French Open, also known as Roland Garros. It's basically the world championship on clay, the surface where consistency and defense often trump shot-making and offensive play, where you can't count as heavily on the kind of pure power Serena can bring. Traditionally, U.S. players have very little experience on red clay as kids. Some never do manage to crack the clay code. Serena made the most of her French Open wins, all figure into her career highlights. The first, in 2002, was just her second major win, but it signaled her eclipse of Sister Venus. She would go on to defeat Venus in the next three major finals as well to complete her Serena Slam. Serena beat nemesis Maria Sharapova in 2013 to lock down major title number 16, but the most inspirational of Serena's French slams was number 20, the one she claimed in 2015. That'll do it. The Grand Slam gathers momentum. It was the key to her second Serena Slam. She fought a nasty flu through most of the event, clawing her way back into a number of matches, ultimately prevailing and going on to complete her second Serena Slam at Wimbledon. So Zena, you know, I want to talk about the French Open, Roland Garros, 
It is played on red clay. I mean, it's in a beautiful city, Paris. Who doesn't like to go to Paris, right? But it's played on red clay, and, and that can be a tough surface for a lot of players, particularly American players, because we don't grow up on that surface. What's some of your your memories about the French Open? You know what, Shanda? The first time that I went to the French Open was directly after coming out of high school. And I did not go to graduation. Instead of my graduation, I actually went to the French Open. And I got to the quarterfinals. The quarterfinals. That was the last time I got to the quarterfinals. So it was all downhill after that. And, you know, for me, yeah, the French was beautiful. You know, the clay was nice. A little bit too slow. But for me, memory, my memories of clay was I was always thinking ahead to try to get to the next tournament, big tournament, which was Wimbledon. A little too slow for me. You know, that was the first big breakthrough that I had at the major level. It was at the French Open, uh, which is ironic because, you know, we don't play as much on clay uh, coming up, growing up in the U.S., going through junior tournaments, but we do have green clay. But the red clay I found was very different, and I actually liked the red clay better. But you couldn't get that stuff out of your socks. I mean, like... I know, but it felt prettier to me. It felt more elegant <laughs> than the green clay. And I I just felt I felt like I, I could play a bit better on it. Now, with that being said, it still took, you know, some, some experience playing matches going back each year, and, and I felt like, I feel like I got better on it. You know, that was always during that time, during you know, going into the summer for us American kids, you know, we had our schoolwork to kind of complete. And every year I was always behind and I would play the French. I played the junior events. I, you know, go through all of that and I'd have to go back and make up my work. But it, it's kind of mixed into some of my fond memories um, surrounding the French Open because I got to three quarter finals there uh, in subsequent years. And it was just always for me, it signified some of the biggest growth that I had in my game. You know, if you got the ability to play on it and to be successful on it, uh, I felt like that translated to other parts of my game. So, you know, it's interesting. I want to talk about Serena and her, um, her results on the red clay, because, you know, that wasn't necessarily her best surface. It's the Grand Slam where she won the fewest titles. But after that first Grand Slam at the U.S. Open in 99, it took a few years for Serena to win again at the major level. But her first title after that U.S. Open was at Roland Garros. It was at the French Open. It was in 2002. But a lot of times people didn't realize they had a clay court in their backyard, um, you know. And so they practice a lot on clay. I think uh, Richard realized that, you know, they needed to develop on all courts, not just on one. And um, so that was always very interesting to me. And even if you talk to Serena now, she'll tell you she loves playing on clay. But like you said, red clay is just a little bit different. But, you know, what I remember about her and winning that first one, (laughs) which is has nothing to do with tennis. It has more to do with education. And when she accepted her speech and she spoke in French, that blew me away. Yeah, I think that really put her in a different kind of place in people's minds. I think that was kind of the start of it. And, and it was also the start of that first Serena slam as well. So there were a number of sort of key things that came out of that 
that French Open, and I think it was the uh, the 2013, right? That was the the second one um, that she won, where she beat Sharapova. Um, she played incredible, barely. I don't even think she lost a set. Maybe maybe she lost one set um, at that French Open, but. She just seemed, after so many years of not winning there, from 2002 to 2013, she just seemed so comfortable. And and you could see it. You could see how comfortable she was that, you know, she went there knowing that she was going to win that tournament. Like, you know, not that I think she ever goes into a tournament not expecting to win, but then there's, you know how it is. You have that extra little oomph, and she just seemed to have that extra little oomph. Like there was no doubt in her mind. And that for a lot of players, that is the struggle. And I think each time for me, when she played well and won those French Opens, that was where she was just playing her best tennis. It, it, it was like everything focused on the red clay. And that was what determined, you know, the, the entire state of Serena's game. And I think red clay can kind of do that. You know, it forces you to have to do everything and even things you aren't as comfortable with or, you know, that you maybe don't have to think about on the faster surfaces on clay, on the red clay. You got to deal with it. And I think for me, it was seeing Serena do that uh, in each of those tournaments where she won in Paris. Well, and also to have the patience. You know, and and that's always, especially when you're younger, sometimes that was more difficult. And I think as you saw her mature, you know, she's really started to understand the game, the patience, you know, um, her just ability, you know, her athletic ability, when to use it, when not to use it, you know, the intensity. It just seemed like it brought out every aspect of her, you know, came to the forefront when she had to put it in play in some of those more difficult matches to win a French. Yeah. And and I think it helped too, that Paris uh, is such a beautiful city and and it seemed to have special significance for Serena because she got a place there. Like she started spending time there in the off season. And, and and when you're that comfortable in a, in a place, it definitely translates onto the tennis court. Well, I, I remember hearing that and I was like, she did what? Like, you know, but then you think about it. It's like anything that you thought that Serena might not do, Serena will do. I did talk about when when I lost my last match and went across the street and the the guy was thinking I was a prostitute. See, I didn't talk about that one. So. Okay, Zena, we need to, okay, hold on, hold on. We need to, okay, so so Zena, tell tell me about about this this French Open where something unexpected happened? Well, it's the same. So, you know, remember I told you I got to the quarterfinals and then it was just all downhill after that. Every year, you know, quarterfinals, 16, you know, just third round, whatever. So I lost the first round, my last first round at the French Open. And I literally saw the, the gate open for when, you know, you're supposed to go, you know, go to your locker room. I was supposed to make a right. Well, I just kept straight going straight ahead. So went over to the little park across the street and I just started to walk. Now, my, mind you not, I had my tennis skirt on still. I had my tennis rackets or whatever. And this guy says, wee wee. He's like gesturing like, you know, he's like himself to him and him. And then I'm like, what is he talking about? And then I realized prostitution is legal. And he was <laughs> asking me to come in the, into what? the 
what's with them and like, basically I guess how much and then I just really lost it I was like you lost that match and now you need <laughs> somebody fix you a prostitute this was just the worst day of my life <laughs> And you, and you got proposition. Wow. And my ex-husband and my coach were following me, but they were way back then. And then I, when I realized they were following me, I'm like, did you guys see the guy? Like, did you have? Oh, it was the worst. Zena, the, the question is, what was your answer? My answer was, you lost the match and here you are. Somebody's <laughs> asking you how much. But... You know, I did leave loose. I think it was Conchita Martinez. I can't say anything. She went on to win the Grand Slam. So. I love that. Oh, my goodness. The GOAT Serena Slamorama continues after this. Wimbledon. The All England Club, where the Wimbledon tournament is held, calls the event simply the championships. And in the eyes of many worldwide, that's just what it is, the most important tennis event of the year. Countless people who surf right past tennis at every other time of the year tune in to watch Wimbledon. More than an athletic competition, Wimbledon is a storehouse of tradition and cultural habit. Much of it, like the predominantly white dress code, is still relevant only at Wimbledon. But people seem to love it all the more for just that reason. No matter how many titles Serena accumulates in Australia or her exploits at other majors, Wimbledon is, for many, the tournament most associated with Serena. It may be because her big game shines brightest on the quick grass surface, or Maybe it's because Wimbledon is the GOAT of tournaments, just as Serena is the GOAT among players. There we are. It's Serena Williams again. 14 years after that first victory here. Grand Slam number 22. Irresistible, majestic. And the judgment of history will surely be that she was in a class of her own. Serena holds up her end of the bargain having won the Wimbledon title seven times. So, Zena, let's talk about Wimbledon. I mean, this is a tournament that is considered sort of the cathedral of tennis. It has so much history. It's the tournament that so many players most want to win. You got to the finals of Wimbledon, and it was historic. It was the, You were the first black player to get to the Wimbledon final, first black female since Althea Gibson. And it brought so much more attention and and you were already a top player, but what was it like, first of all? And how did things change for you after that incredible performance? You know, Chanda, I always had like this unbelievable love for, for Wimbledon since the day that I won Junior Wimbledon there. And just, the, you know, I love the intimacy of the court. I love when you walked in. I loved all the greenery. I, I, I love you could actually, to me, I felt like you could really feel the history. Like everyone had come through there. And um, I got a special like, you know, like, come on, Zena. Like, I want to do well there. Every time I literally walked into those gates. And, you know, it was just always something that was just something that, you know, 
I think the fact that it was so small that you could feel, like I said, the history within there. But then people would say, oh, hi, Zena, you know, and it, you don't you don't feel threatened. You don't feel like somebody's they, they just know about you the game, the tennis player, the history, you're possibly the next one coming up. Like, how was it for you? I remember watching you as a junior there. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I I won Wimbledon Junior as well in 1992. And uh, that was a huge, it was a highlight for me um, because, you know, obviously it's Wimbledon, um, number one, but I was also kind of transitioning to being a full-time pro. I was still in school, still in high school. And, and so, you know, trying to set a schedule and figure out which tournaments to play. And I think that was like my last junior event. And, you know, of course I wanted to do well, but to play my last event and to go out with a win, it just, I felt like I'd proved something to myself. And to also do it at Wimbledon, which was such a, a special tournament, a, a you know, a historic tournament. It's not the biggest stadium court out of all the majors, but it feels large. It feels grand. And, and that's funny you said that because when you talk to people and they they know about Wimbledon, I mean, you can get a winer on the street and they'll say, oh, do you ever play at Wimbledon? You know, they think it's the biggest court. And like you said, it isn't. But also there was something amazing even as something as small as when I first went there, I never forget somebody's like, you have to try the strawberries and cream. I'm like, it's strawberries and it's cream. Like, what's the big deal? And I remember saying, I remember asking for the strawberries without the cream and they, they look like, is she crazy? <laughs> but, you know, just the fact that everything there is, you know, it has a significance and, and you know, the history and people respect that. Mm-hmm. Yes, you, you definitely feel that part of it. And, you know, sometimes Wimbledon, it can be at the end of a bit of a long stretch for players. But there was always a bit of a rejuvenated feeling when you got to Wimbledon. So, Zena, let, you know, let's talk about Serena, her first Wimbledon that she won in 2002. And, you know, at that point, you're thinking, okay, she plays so great on, you know, these different surfaces, but did you ever think she could be that successful at Wimbledon when you considered her game and, and how it translated on the other surfaces? Well, I, I for a long time, just thought Venus was just going to take over <laughs> at Wimbledon and kind of, you know, follow in the footsteps of Martina Navratilova and when so many, because Venus's game was like, the best game that at that time. But I also made me think about something. The seed in the grass changed, if you remember. Back in the old days, you know, you know, one or two bounces, you got to hurry up and get to the net. They started to make the grass, I think, a little, the blade a little longer and stuff and where you could hit more balls. And I think that that also helped someone like Serena. It was still fast, but it wasn't as fast as it was before. But she also could use her athletic ability more than anything, the intensity that Serena brought to that court. You know, she felt like she owned it and she started to believe that. And I think it really took over from there. Yeah, I think that's a good point, because when she won the French Open that same year in 2002, that was a tough tournament. But it almost felt like once she got through that, 
It's like she felt she could do anything. And the next step seemed to be Wimbledon that that was going to be her tournament, even though she hadn't won it before. It had been Venus dominating, (laughs) winning the previous two years. But Serena stepped up and, and almost took the mantle. You know, it wasn't it wasn't given to her. And I remember that year I played Serena in 2002 at Wimbledon. And it was the first time I'd played her. And of course, knowing her game and how powerful it was and and the fact that, you know, she was this prodigy (laughs) from the start, but I didn't know what to expect playing her on the grass. And it was everything you could have expected in terms of her game and how how dominant she could be. But it was her serve, uh, Zena, I remember probably more than anything else. It was a, a weapon in and of itself. And you almost felt like there were no answers to it. It, it literally wasn't. I mean, for, you know, there was a serious stretch of Grand Slam tournaments and tournaments where Serena's serve was just untouchable for a while. And, you know, she could be down 40 love and she'd pop off three with no thought process behind it and, you know, just walk up there. And, you know, I, I would venture to say, uh, really looking back and diving deep into all her, you know, the last 23 Grand Slams that she has won, and then her serve was the reason why she won the way she won. And the ones that she hasn't won in these previous last couple of years, think about it. Her serve has, has, has actually hampered her. Yeah, it's let her down just a bit. But, but on the grass, it was such a weapon. And, you know, you think about what is required to play on the surface. You don't necessarily have to serve in volley anymore because the the surface has changed over the years. But it still kind of favors the more aggressive minded players, that more aggressive minded mentality. And Serena's serve, it is aggressive. It is aggressive with a capital A. And she can hit all the spots. You know, she can hit to the center, she can hit the wide serve, she can hit the body serve on both sides, on both the deuce and the ad side of the court, and she can do it with the same look, with the same toss. With the same and toss. so it's difficult to read, and I think that that's one of the keys to her serve, because there are players that can hit different serves, but if you can see it coming, the serve is not as effective. But with Serena, you couldn't read it. You almost had to guess, or you had to start trying to figure out what her tendencies might be, the serves she liked to hit in certain moments. But even that, you were kind of guessing. But Tina, I was always curious to ask someone that has played her, you know, so you mentioned a little bit of their placement or power. What did she beat you with? It was the placement more than anything. I mean, it was powerful. Mm. It was powerful, but, you know, she, she wasn't serving crazy power out of control. You know, she, it was very controlled power, but it was the placement that really got you because you, as you know, Zena, you can't cover everything. So if you, if you kind of lean one way and she gets you the other, you have no way to recover um, with the way she placed the ball, with how, with how, you know, how devastating that part of it was. And so for me, it was, I thought going into the match, it would be more the power but and the power was there. Don't get me wrong. But the placement was ridiculous. <laughs> you know, the place like, you know, how do you hit every single serve? How, how can how do you have that ability to hit every single serve, you know, with that kind of control? So that was always most impressive. Well, placement 
at the times when she needed it. That's what, to me, set her apart. Yeah, it was you know, clutch. She, she clutch situations. She could get out of them, but the placement was amazing at that particular time. Ah, uh, yes. Serena's serve and Wimbledon grass. It was a match made in heaven. In 2003, in the drive for major number six, it was instrumental in her wins over rival Jennifer Capriati and in one of her best matches with runner-up Venus. In 2009, excellent serving at critical moments helped her recover from match point down against Elena Dementieva and go on to win major number 11. Serena fought through one of the toughest draws of her career in 2015, saving match points against British player Heather Watson to win major number 21 and clinch her second Serena Slam. The next Wimbledon title she won in 2016 over Angelique Kerber equaled Steffi Graf's open era Grand Slam title record. We're going to move on to the final major of the year, the U.S. Open. As you heard Mary Carrillo say at the beginning of the episode, New York presented unique challenges for Serena. She won six titles there. Gang, she owns the night here in New York. Some felt that the growing hype, commercial demands, expectations, including her own, combined to create a mountain of pressure. It may explain some of her controversial behavior and other unexpected details, like her loss to Sam Stoser in 2011. The U.S. Open was also the site of Serena's most costly defeat, as her coach Patrick Muradoglu made clear in his words earlier in the show. In losing her 2015 semifinal to number 43-ranked Roberta Vinci, Serena lost her best chance to complete the only significant feat that has eluded her, the Grand Slam, winning all four majors in the same year. In the open era, only Steffi Graf has accomplished that. Yet the triumphs in Arthur Ashe Stadium far outweighed the tragedies. At 116 wins to 14 losses, her overall winning percentage of 88% is the same as at Wimbledon and even the Australian Open. In 2008, Serena bounced back from a six-major tournament losing streak to snatch title number nine from Yelena Yankovic. In 2012, she was two points from defeat against Victoria Azarenka before claiming title number 15 in what was probably the most fiercely contested final of her career. Her masterpiece? The 2014 U.S. Open, number 18, where she lost no sets and gave up an average of just over four games per match. Curiously, it was her last final win in Ash Stadium. But let's crank up the time machine to hit some of the high spots. Well, I also remember one of my, um, the, the, U.S. Opens that stands out is when the women's final was first put in prime time. And that was, I think the, the 
2002 U.S. Open. And we all knew kind of going into the tournament that, you know, this huge change first and foremost was because of Venus and Serena, how dominant they were becoming, how dynamic they were as players, um, you know, how much they had already won uh, at that point because Venus finally got her Wimbledon yeah. titles <laughs> among others right so um, and so it was just it was amazing that year to know the women's final was going to be in prime time and it ended up being Venus and Serena in the final yeah well you, you just made me think about something because I remember too after was it after their final they played there a couple times but um, remember after they called me up and they they both were like oh find us some good place to go get something to eat. And we went down in Harlem to this restaurant that stayed open. I can't remember the name of it, but I remember them walking in and just thinking you guys just played each other. <laughs> and that was after a final yeah. that they played together. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, the U S open, it, it was the whole environment of that tournament is, is just different, especially for an American player. And, you know, especially I think at different over the course of different years for both Venus and Serena, you know, all the pressure that's part of New York prime time playing under the lights, you know, the expectations and Venus and Serena, they were always big match players, Yeah, but there, there were, were some matches in particular at the U S open. I feel like it always stood out to me uh, with Serena, the, players that competed the best against her kind of brought that same intensity or at least could come close to matching her level of intensity. <laughs> and for me, it was a lot of times it was Victoria Azarenka. I remember so many of those matches, especially, you know, one or two finals that they played in particular, but so many of those matches that were tough, hard fought battles. And Serena was even more impressive to me in those moments all the expectation was on her, but the way she fought through and was able to get through those tough matches just seemed to take place a number of times at the U.S. Open. Well, you brought up a big point, someone that can can match her intensity, and not many people can match her intensity. But, you know, Azarenka was one of those that could. And it, it was always interesting to me because I always saw Serena as one of those people that loved the attention and love playing the big matches and being on on that court but the night matches in Serena just also brought out so much and 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 it's the visual that I always have when she walked out on a night match. If you can, if you didn't notice anything else, you noticed that walk. She came out there, but the day she came out with that cat suit on, it was all over. I remember sitting next to a lot of guys, and they were like, <laughs> "Oh my goodness, is this happening really?" <laughs> no, that was amazing. I mean, she's had some eye-catching outfits, but that cat suit has to be up there in terms of. You know, everybody just stopping and being spellbound. You know, it's one thing to wear that outfit, but to to wear it and know that you're walking out there and still feel like it's your house and it and your tennis is still going to speak for itself. And for Serena, that was always for me what I noticed the most. The outfit was one thing, but her tennis was even greater than the outfit. And how many players could say that? <laughs> After walking out like that. Well, Chanda, definitely me and you were not worrying about no fashion. We were worrying about, you know, hitting that ball over the net. So, you know, that was another thing. Um, you know, it really broke fashion. Yeah, it became something people looked at and, you know, wanted to know, okay, what 
what were these players going to be wearing? You know, what was the outfit that they would unveil at this year's U.S. Open? And, and that for me was always as much of a story or pretty close to, you know, as much of a story as, you know, the tennis that players played coming into the event. So I always liked that part of it. And prime time at night, that's where you pull out your best stuff. And Serena knew how to do that. She knew how to grab the moment. That brings this episode of The Goat, Serena, Slamorama to a close. Although remember, Serena's career as of now is still a work in progress. If you look at what she accomplished and how she did it, you'll understand that the one thing you can never do is write Serena off as a contender, not until she declares that she's hanging up her rackets. In our next episode, wife, mother, goat, we'll look at Serena's softer side, as well as her capacity for loyalty to those around her with special guest Jill Smoller, the agent who has developed from manager and rainmaker into close friend and confidant. You won't want to miss this one. The Goat Serena was written by Pete Bodo. This season is hosted by Zena Garrison and Tanda Rubin. Produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Kalb. Production assistance from Anita Okoye. And our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Original music by Andy Marvel. Our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers, Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA and Susan Canavan. Diversion Podcasts.